Welcome to BC The Beatles, the podcast about the Beatles, everything about the Beatles, 24-8. I'm Erica. And I'm Allison. Before we start, please be sure to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts or stream us on Spotify. If you're enjoying BC The Beatles, feel free to leave us a preferably five-star review so other Beatle maniacs can find us. Also, don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We'll be posting videos, photos, and more from this episode and beyond. You can also email us at bcthebeatles at gmail.com. Hey, what's up, dude? Wow, I'm like punch drunk from like 16 hours of watching Get Back over and over and over again. Yeah, same, same. <laughs> I almost can't talk because there's so much to process. Yeah, there's just more more and more things to unpack. I don't know if it'll ever end. It's been a good weekend. Yeah. Well, you know, before we start talking about Get Back, we probably should acknowledge that we're recording this on the 30th. So yesterday was 20 years since George died, which is crazy town. It feels like yesterday. I can't believe it's been that long. For a lot of us, it was our first big Beatles death, the first change, really, because for those of us who weren't alive or old enough to remember John, it was this huge shock. Do you remember it? Yeah, I remember it. I remember, well, I saw a lot of my friends, um, ironically, my younger friends posting screen grabs of, do you remember when George did that, like, Yahoo chat? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, and I, on my old, old, old desktop, I have, like, screenshots I took because I was in that chat. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. And so I saw them, like, posting sort of, like, caps or whatever from that. And so I was, like, you know, the old lady in the corner being like, I was there. <laughs> I feel like it was a couple days before he died, like, he came out and said, like, oh, no, my cancer is getting better. I'm fine. Don't worry. And then it's like, boom, dead, like two days later, because I remember being particularly crushed. I woke up in the morning and I went downstairs for school and my mom was like, oh, George Harrison died. And I'm like, what? Fuck. (laughs) And I started crying. I was very upset. And Yeah, I remember that whole day at school. I was just so fucking distraught. I like started drawing a George portrait, like a pastel George portrait uh, in art. And then that weekend, I forced my best friend to dress all in black with me and go up to the Rock Hall in Cleveland and like literally just sit in front of this George picture, I guess because I was like an emo bitch in 2002 or 2001. (laughs) I love that. Sorry, Erin. She'll never hear this. But like that was, yeah, that was very teenager Allison of me were you the only people there uh we were the only people thankfully in front of the photo being very like emo teenagers so that was that was a good thing it's like I can't believe my mom let me pay admission to the rock hall to do that I love that she was a saint really what about you do you remember that day yeah I was it was kind of in the phase in my life when I was sort of not as engaged with the Beatles I was in college I was doing theater I was in another country all this stuff but It was kind of the same as you, that I had heard he was ill, but then I heard that he was okay. I heard it on the radio, because I remember I was doing, like, my work-study job, and they had always played the radio during the day, and it was just announced as, like, a thing that had just happened or something, or the first announcement, and it was, like, total shock. I think it kind of catapulted me back into a major Beatles obsession, because it was almost like, how did I miss this? And how did I not know? And, you know, I... I almost felt like I should have been there. Like, I should have known. It was really sad. I mean, John not being there was always part of my life as a Beatles fan. But Mm -hmm. George not being there, that just seemed so weird. Because it was only a few years before that that the anthology had come out. And 
you know, he was so snarky and he was funny and the <laughs> Wilburys were a thing. And it just didn't seem possible that he was gone. Yeah, you know, as you talk about that, I'm trying to think of my consciousness of George before that, because I was still a relatively new Beatles fan. I became a Beatles fan in 2000. I remember definitely when George got stabbed. And I guess I just sort of was conscious of him in the zeitgeist. Like, as you know, Erica, before the internet, it was really easy to sort of remember these people existed, but not really pay attention to them. Like, you know, uh, we weren't able to watch TikToks of Paul talking about bagels, which, by the way, if you haven't seen that, Oh. It ruined my whole day. Oh, I have Just go on that. Paul's TikTok. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. It ruined my whole fucking day. Anyway. Um, but so it's like, you know, Paul existed, George existed, but Ringo existed. But, you know, I, I wasn't following their day-to-day activities because you just couldn't. So I guess, yeah, just by virtue of him being sick and then being like, oh, no, I'm getting better. And then, oh, whoops, I died. That was maybe my context to lead up to George dying. Which, knowing more about it, I, I wonder why they put that out. Because he was clearly on his last days a couple of yeah. weeks before he passed away. There wasn't That wasn't really based in fact. Yeah, I'm not sure. I would be very curious to know the, the thinking behind that. Whether it was George just being like, tell him I'm fine so he'll get off my back. Like, that kind of seems like George. <laughs> very possibly. But, you know, can't believe it. It's crazy. We need to talk about Brainwashed at some point. Um, oh, yeah. I love that album so much. We say this every time we talk about George, that we haven't done enough George episodes. We haven't. And for any of you being like, thank you. Yeah, we're aware. We're like totally aware of this. <laughs> we're also aware that we talked about doing an All Things Must Pass episode and we haven't yet, but we should. Yeah, we have a list of stuff that we haven't done yet. Like so many George episodes, but and Ringo too. We just sort of gravitate towards Paul. I wonder why. Mm. It's a real, it's a real mystery. As I stare at our dock uh, with a nice picture of Paul's round ass on it. I mean, Thanks, this picture has been going around, and I had to save it. Yeah, I put it in our Instagram stories, so y'all can see what I'm looking at, what we're looking at. Captioned, "Dad ass." It's a screenshot from Get Back, and it's a good one. Yeah, it is a good one. I must say. Um, if you guys, just one more thing before we get into this, I guess, uh, if you guys haven't heard yet, we did a roundtable discussion with our friends over at Blotto Beatles, uh, ranking the Beatles and Paul or nothing, Mr. Sam Wiles, along with, uh, fans on the run, uh, Ethan Exalian, Alexanian, how do you say Ethan's last name? Um, Alexandrian? I don't think nope. that's right. Alexanian? <laughs> Alexanian. Alexanian. There we go. Ethan, Ethan Alexanian from... <laughs> From uh, fans of the room, we love you, Ethan. Sorry, Ethan. Uh, we've both been on that show, actually. Yeah. Yeah, so great show. Fun. We've also been on Blotto Beatles before, we think. Yes. Yes, we think. I, I've been told. Uh, but yeah, so we did a nice roundtable with them where we talked about uh, all kinds of stuff related to Get Back. What reminded me is we're talking about Paul's ass as we had a very lengthy uh, sidebar on Ringo's penis. Lengthy. Uh, uh-huh. Length. <laughs> Sorry, that was... <laughs> Freudian slip, I suppose. You know, I've heard that George was the best, you know, the most well-endowed Beatle, but maybe Ringo's like, nah, you leave that clip in there. You show them. You show them who's the most well-endowed Beatle. Creative control. It's all he wanted. Exactly. See, we don't just talk about Paul. No, we're talking about Ringo now. <laughs> Ringo's like, Peter Jackson, if you can enhance the film, what else could you enhance? Peace and love. I'm enlarging this with peace and love. 
enlarging this with peace and love. Uh. <laughs> I want that on a t-shirt <laughs> or something. That's hilarious. So gross. <laughs> oh, Jesus. Oh, my God. Oh, that's it. That's the documentary. I think that we've given our unique perspective on Get Back. And thanks for listening to BC The Beatles. All right. Uh, yeah. See you next time. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh my god all right shall we get shall we get into this yes we have a lot more things to talk about other than their anatomy so let's just start off with first impressions what what did you think after the three days of watching this and what were some of your standout moments i don't even know where to start my brain is sort of blown i know yeah i don't know i i just loved the whole process of it i thought that was really cool we had both seen let it be but it was so different obviously so much more footage the routineness of it all and if you keep in mind like what that all the what things they were going through at that time their personal lives you know with John and Yoko and you know certainly Paul with his new family forming and them sort of breaking apart slowly but surely the craziest part for me I think was hearing them be self-aware of it you know that was a trippy part like I could accept watching them do their thing like their craft or whatever but them talking about like moments maybe in their career where I was sort of like, Hey, how do you know that? I know that because I'm a Beatles historian. Like <laughs> I didn't realize that they were aware of themselves as, as crazy as mm-hmm. that sounds. So I love those little flashbacks that they did. Like even just talking about like Hamburg, which they did a lot. I was shocked how much they fucking mentioned Hamburg, but I thought it was great. I thought like, I want to see more. I'm ready for like, the expansion pack on this PJ for real. Well, he did say that his favorite cut was the 18 hour cut. So maybe one day we'll get it. You know what I don't want? I don't want the 18 minute Helter Skelter and I don't care, but I do want the 18 hour cut of this. Totally agree. What's your uh, grand takeaway? It was wonderful to see them be people, right? Like you said, talking about being in Hamburg, they made a lot of callbacks to their earlier years. And to me, it kind of put a lot of pieces, like it it made them kind of click together. I always feel like, and and maybe this is because of their fashion and their hair and just their changing musical tastes, like Beatle years feel so much longer than real people years. Like the difference in time between Hamburg and Let It Be feels like it's, 30-year period or something. Yeah. It almost was like, how did they remember that? It was such a long time ago. But no, it was like six years ago. So it it kind of made the Beatles feel more like real people in some sense and really fleshed out that time and put it into perspective how much they did in such a really short period of time. On the other hand, it made them, especially Paul, seem like aliens from another dimension. Like the fact (laughs) that they have that much musicality and ideas pouring from them. And especially Paul, like it's almost like he can't stop it. Normal people can't do that. And it's just incredible to watch them work like that. That time when you saw Get Back forming from like some bass lines in Paul's head, like really just shaping itself almost like a sculpture into Get Back. That was crazy. Yeah. It wasn't cut. It was yeah. in real time, right? Like, And it was such a short amount of time that he made that happen. It's just nuts. Yeah. I went, I went back and rewatched that today because I was just sort of like, 
holy shit. And I actually love the subtitles that Peter Jackson puts where he's like, you know, Paul turns to new material. What he's coming up with now becomes the next single. And I was just like, ah, chills. Yeah. You know, because he's strumming his fucking bass. Like he's not even, you know, picking stuff out. He's like treating it like he's just doing it absentmindedly and coming up with like, get back to where you once belonged. It's like, what the? I, it's It's crazy. How do people's brains do that thing? He's an alien. I don't know. I think you're right about that. And he's an alien from the future because he said a couple of things that were so prescient and almost predicted, like that thing he said about 50 years people are going to be saying the Beatles broke mm. up because Yoko sat on an amp. Sure will. Right? It won't, take, it won't take that long for them to say it, Paul. Nope. <laughs> but he absolutely knew. And it wasn't, it was great to see that that wasn't his opinion, at least not at that time. He was fine with yeah. the whole thing. Yeah. Even in the beginning of their talks with Michael Lindsay Hogg, where, where, you know, he wanted to go to Tripoli and do that crazy Coliseum thing. And Paul was like, well, maybe we can have a concert here. And he even said something like, maybe the police can stop it. And it's just a couple of things throughout that was like, really? Like, you are an alien being. Okay. And speaking of Paul, I mean, this thing kind of reframed, well, this thing reframed a lot of, of, like long held beliefs I had about the Beatles in a lot of ways, mostly about Paul after Brian died. I always thought that he was like, Oh yes. Like twist his evil mustache. My chance to take over the Beatles and be the leader, <laughs> be the boss because you know, magical mystery tour, you yeah. know, you had all that kind of shit where he's like, yeah, we get to do this now. Cause Brian's dead. <laughs> but here you really get to see him sort of be like, I didn't want to be the boss. I don't want to be the boss, which I, I think maybe more in the beginning he did, but at this point, he's probably over it. So that's why you see him sort of be like, I'm doing the work. None of you guys want to do it, basically. Like, I don't have a choice here. We have to get it done. Um, not so much like being dictator Paul. Now, if you ask George, he'll be like, absolutely, Paul's dictator. And I can see his point there. But I can also see where Paul is sort of like, he's backed into a corner and he feels like he has no other choice but to sort of steer the music in a way because nobody else is doing jack shit right like he's overflowing with ideas and this need to keep producing and keep getting bigger and better and more and more and if if somebody isn't shaping it for him he's like well fuck it i'm gonna do i'm gonna do the shaping but that's not necessarily his talent and his strong point yeah i mean that's a very romantic way of putting it erica congratulations <laughs> um i was <laughs> I am more was of the mind that Paul is sort of backed up against the wall and he's just sort of like, fuck it, you guys aren't going to do it. Like, so I guess I have to, you know, and thank God he has the ability. The way you explain it, I think absolutely in the beginning, because he just sort of needed an outlet. But perhaps at this time in their career, they're sort of forcing the future where they all split off. Certainly George is, you know, in part three, he talks about, you know, doing his own album, but Perhaps Paul's also sort of like, okay, I just got to get through this and then we'll see what happens. He says in part one that he already brought up a divorce, you know, mm -hmm. in a meeting. Yeah, I don't know. I just, yeah, it, it reframed a little bit how I think about Paul in this period and the period immediately before it. I kept thinking about give my regards to Broad Street during all of these conversations around Paul. Like, <laughs> why? <laughs> because I feel like it's the same kind of thing. Like. He wants to just keep making things. But if he's the guy at the helm, it's not the most organized use of his time and talent because he's just coming up with things and he needs somebody. He needs Peter Jackson to come in and say, well, we're going to shape this in a certain way. 
Like, he shouldn't be the guy in charge. Even if he wants to be, even if he thinks he should be, he shouldn't be. Well, and also, I think he's also, you know, adopting sort of a more administrative, administrative, you know, task uh, master kind of role as well. He says, you know, we need a daddy figure because they don't have that, you know, since Brian uh, is not there. They have George Martin, but he's sort of like in the background. Giles had even said that his father was hurt by it when he talked to us about it, that it was a really tough time. Oh, wait. That's right. Giles Martin was on our podcast. Have you heard it yet? Go listen to it. Go back and listen. It's pretty epic. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, of course. I could tell. I could, I I got that vibe from George throughout the, the doc where he would sort of come in when he felt like compelled to, but otherwise it was like, okay, well you guys are kind of on your own because you, you kind of made me part of the wallpaper here. I felt like things really started coming into place at Savile Row and he was a little bit more involved. And he even yeah. said something like they, they said they needed something. And George Martin, he was like, I'll take care of it. I'll, I'll make it good. I'll make it work. Like, and it's just this kind of calming yeah. presence that that's finally when things started to settle a little bit. And I think that he is also one of those father figures in the Beatles world. So without, mm-hmm. without him and Brian... All they had was Michael Lindsay Hogg, who was clearly in over his head as far as dealing with these personalities and making some shaping something out of what whatever they wanted to do. 100%. Well, also, George got to play the big hero because Magic Alex's studio was a piece of shit. And uh, George got to be like, well, guess what? I will come to the rescue with a bunch of equipment from EMI. Da, 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 da. And thank God and he did. So, <laughs> thank God. Thank God for George Martin, man. Maybe if he hadn't stepped in, though, we would have had that lovely two-headed guitar, that that rotating... Uh... What the fuck? That was like some play school shit, honestly. <laughs> I was like, what? This looks like literally Fisher-Price here. Fucking Magic Alex. Magic Alex. Oh, my God. Jeez. <laughs> oh, um, speaking of crazy names that came up, like, you know, Magic Alex, there were a couple of mentions that perked up my ears throughout the doc. So at one point, I think in part three... John is sort of sparring with somebody, maybe even been George Martin, where he's sort of like teasing him because they're in a little bit of a, like a verbal play fight. And John goes, ah, ah, you know, remember what happened to Bob Wooler? And I was like, what? He's bringing that up? So casual. I know. Obviously, that's a callback to Paul's 21st birthday when John got into a fist fight uh, with Bob Wooler when Bob asked John, how was your honeymoon? with Brian because they just come back from Spain and I was like holy shit I can't believe John is like referencing this that was a very surreal moment for me that was weird it was also one of those like really that was a, like 30 years ago you remember that but no that was forever ago I know that was like pre-Beatlemania dude like you still think about that like that says a lot John there's a lot to unpack there that you still brought that up yeah yeah is he like subtly reminding people of his physical prowess is he bringing up the brian thing like where what's what's behind this does he just think it's funny that he was in the papers for that (laughs) yeah i i don't know there it's it obviously was a very significant thing that happened to him uh or that he he was party to who knows (laughs) so weird i know i was also very surprised and shout out to jim birkenstadt because they brought up Jimmy Nickel about 60,000 times, which was shocking to me. Also, like another moment of like, really? That's like made that much of an impression on you? Like they told this whole story about him checking out women from the drum kit. What is the point of bringing up Jimmy Nickel? It's just so funny. 
Um, one more thing I want to mention before we move on, because it's the elephant in the room here, let's be honest. Mm. So in the part one, they start talking about what has happened since Mr. Epstein died, which I was very upset about. But upon, you know, calming down and rationally thinking this out, I would like to explain why the Beatles may have said Mr. Epstein. Even though we clearly have had declared, have evidence, go back and listen to our episodes where we clearly state why Brian's last name is pronounced Epstein. So his family name is Epstein. So that would make a lot of sense if the Beatles still referred to him as Epstein. Also, they might not have given a shit. That's also possible at this point in time. Could have been an inside joke. Does not change that Brian wanted his name pronounced Epstein. And also, one more thing. We were on, when we were on the Blood of Beatles podcast the other day, Sam Wiles was like, no, of course it's Epstein. Sam is British. And that is the widely used pronunciation of that last name Mm -hmm. in the UK. But the reason why Brian wanted it to be Epstein is because he felt it would be more Americanized. Whether or not that's true, I don't know. But that was his thinking. So anyway, that's why the Beatles fucked it up. Yeah, it You're wasn't welcome. it wasn't as important to the <laughs> Beatles as it was to Brian. And that was if that's the name the way the name is commonly pronounced, they probably it probably didn't bother them as much as it bothered him if the name was said. Yeah. Brian wanted the unusual pronunciation for a specific reason. That doesn't mean everybody remembered that they should be using it at all times. And of course, they're still working with Clive. Clive is still part of NEMS at this point. Uh, Brian's brother, Clive. Clive is Clive Epstein. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of reasons. But I just wanted to make that very clear that it's still Epstein, still Brian Epstein. I can't wait until uh, Midas Man comes out. That better be correct or else that's all this podcast oh, is going to be about. I'm, I'm already so fucking stressed out about it. <laughs> <laughs> I can't even talk about it right now. <laughs> I think about it way too much. Another thing that I thought was really interesting in the film was getting to know George a little bit better. He, you know, he walked out and that yeah. was known as something that had happened, but it wasn't in the original Let It Be. Um, it was actually suppressed at the request of the Beatles. They didn't want that to come out. So, you know, now we see not only that little snippet of, you know, I'll play whatever you want, whatever pleases you, you know, that little snippet, but you see kind of the lead up to the day and the way George seemed to feel under Paul's musical direction for a lot of that time. And just how, you know, how upsetting it really was to him to be such a better songwriter than he was four or five years ago and not get the recognition that he now deserves as part of the Beatles. Yeah, I mean, you know, he's been under Paul's thumb for almost 10 years as the Beatles are splintering. I'm sure he's still like, I've got to put up with this shit again, you know, and I could totally see why he walked out. I thought it was good. I thought it was a good good move on his part. It got him a little bit of leverage anyway. Yeah, I think George Martin actually said it best when he was talking to them about it. He was saying how, you know, John and Paul are this this team and George is his own company. How can you, no matter how good you are, compete against Lennon McCartney? Thinking about how hard that must have been for him places his role in the Beatles in a whole new perspective. Even if it's not like Lennon McCartney genius songwriters, it's still two against one. And the two are hit makers. Hitmakers with all of their songs cataloged and licensed to the point where, like, Dick James comes sauntering in to talk about licensing issues. And George doesn't have that what going on. What a fucking on. surprise. Right. Yeah. 
What a surprise to see Mr. Dick James uh, or Dick Jaws. The Ruddles has ruined my brain so much that I think of so many characters <laughs> in this story as just their Ruddles characters. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Where I will say Dick Jaws for Dick James. And as they talk about Alan Klein later, I just pictured John Belushi. I mean, it's a great portrayal. Forever. It's a great portrayal. He yeah. probably played Alan Klein better than Alan Klein played Alan Klein. So there you go. Exactly. But no, you're totally right. I think George in this was super interesting, not least because of his fashion. Oh, Let's be real. God, he's he looked great. He was making a point of dressing for this film. Yeah, I mean, you gotta love his like pale pink or purple pinstriped suit. Oh, so lovely. With this purple like frilly shirt he wears underneath. Those Ugg boots, because his little feet must have been cold. Yeah, and all of his pillows that he sat on. My God, George. (laughs) Where are you getting them from? Or rather, where is Mal getting these from? Exactly, the same place he got that bow tie. Same place he got the anvil. Like, Mal has a hookup for everything. (laughs) What a job Mal must have had. The stories he could have told about the things he just had to source for them. Honestly, MVP of this whole thing. I loved seeing Mal so much. Such a joyful, fun, sweet energy. I love the scenes with him and Heather and Apple where they're like playing and they're like spinning around and stuff. And he just looked so happy when he was banging that anvil. Man, never been happier. Yeah. Find somebody who looks at you the way Mal Evans looks at that anvil. Oh my god, can we make that a meme? Somebody please make that a meme. (laughs) (laughs) And speaking of Mal, Mal um, got quite the tribute during this Peter Jackson editing period because they they use this AI technology. It's how they got the flowerpot conversation out. It was like lifting various parts of the mono conversation so that the sound was clearer and they could could hear more things. And they called their technology M-A-L, Mal, after Mal Evans. (gasps) Oh, I don't think I knew that. It's so sweet. It's like a combination of Hal, I guess that, like, what was that sci-fi, like, 2001 A Space Odyssey? Yeah. But they called it Mal. Oh, I love that so much. I know. Oh, yeah. um, When, again, at the premiere, we, so what we saw, we'll talk about a little bit later, but basically we saw a cut, but interspersed with the first part of the cut was Peter Jackson sort of explaining the process of how he made the film and a lot of the background conversation was brought out using robotic technology, like literally voice recognition that sort of recreated like the background talk. It was fascinating to hear about. I don't understand it because I'm not scientific at all. Um, But the way they used AI to sort of literally capture everything going on the room was phenomenal. It was crazy. Yeah. That's Mal. That's Mal. Mal's doing that. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) But that was interesting too, that I was thinking like, why the fuck was this flowerpot conversation not in the original Land of Bees? Because it didn't Dude, exist. Really? They didn't have it. It didn't come yeah. to light until they could use the system to separate all of the like clanging of a cafeteria from what John and Paul were actually saying. I'm sure if like Michael Lindsay Hogg listened back to it or the sound engineers, they're like, well, fuck it. We can't hear anything. And thank God they didn't like discard the tapes or something. Right? You know? And that was quite the conversation. What comes across to me about that conversation, you know, where John and Paul are talking about how George is overlooked and John sort of saying to Paul, like, you do this to everybody. And Paul's like, well, I never wanted to be the leader anyway. And you guys aren't helping. What comes across to me is how kind of like civil they are. I mean, I know they're all British, but like, I feel like if it were me having that conversation with somebody, it'd probably be a lot more like passive aggressive, perhaps. And John really lays it out there. Yeah. And they argue over who is the boss and... 
Paul's like, you've always been the boss. I've been like a secondary boss. And John's like, no, that's not true. You know, you took it on. But like, what a crazy intimate moment that we're able to have because of technology. That's insane. Yeah. And now it makes me wonder what else could we go back and unearth with this technology? What other recording sessions? Because they never deleted anything at Abbey Road after a certain period. There's got to be a lot more out there. I mean, Peter Jackson's not totally sick of this shit by now. Like, I'm sure he could go in there and have a field day. Peter Jackson was like the perfect person for this project because he's such an intense nerd. And yeah. oh, like, yeah. he loves technology, but he loves also loves history. And he doesn't have mm-hmm. any problem with making things super long. Like all of his previous work kind of builds up to, yes, you're the perfect person to make exactly this thing. Another interesting part of this narrative was the way they reframed the story of Yoko. It was really interesting. She was almost silent the entire time. She was there every day, but she was barely speaking. Right. I mean, yeah, she sort of had somebody on the Blotto podcast mentioned she had a lot of paperwork. She (laughs) did. Very funny. (laughs) A lot of letters. She was doing her own shit, you know, then she was like painting on the wall, which I'm like, oh, where'd that painting go? Like, I'd find that. Sure, she was like contributing vocals, but it seemed like sort of in the warm up period of the day or like, you know, not in the middle of things. She definitely didn't seem like she was insisting herself upon anyone. No, no. I mean, those were like specific jam sessions that they did. Yeah. She wasn't like singing or offering musical suggestions during their rehearsals. She was just, uh, you know, playing around when she could. And then, you know, you get Heather, little Heather McCartney mm-hmm. on the mic, like imitating Yoko, which was so cute. That was so cute. And I loved the fact that John brought that up. And he was like, oh, it's Yoko. And then, you know, Yoko laughed like everybody was having fun with it, which reframes another part of the narrative on Yoko was that like John and Yoko never had fun after they were together. Like they were always so dour and miserable. That's totally not true. That's crazy. Yeah, you see them have a lot of fun. Like, you know, them, of course, waltzing to I Me Mine, which is the best. And one of my favorite parts of the doc, which is when I think part two, where Yoko finds out that her divorce went through. And she and John have this big smooch. And it's just so cute. And they're both smiling from ear to ear. And it's just such a joyful moment. And even like Paul, you know, sings a little line to congratulate them. And you know, it's just it's just a lovely moment. Yeah, and they needed some happiness. I mean, they had had they a did. miscarriage at a very late-term pregnancy in November. I see a lot of people on the internet questioning why they had to be so close to each other for this entire month. Well, you know, maybe part of it was they just needed each other's physical support. They needed to be together at that time. A lot of things were going yeah. on. There was a lot. I mean, and it's hard to position the perspective that... Guys, the White Album came out two months before this, not even like literally a month and a half before this. So we're looking at all of the stuff, all of the drama, all of the whatever was in the zeitgeist around the White Album was still there, you know, with John and Yoko. So it's not sort of like, you know, Yoko showed up and like was just omnipresent. It was sort of like she was around for the White Album sessions. Yeah, it kind of makes sense why she would be there, why John would want her there. Plus, you got, you know, Paul bringing around Linda. You got Mo coming to the studio. Patty comes in at one point. So it seemed like a lot more of a looser situation. George even had those two ghostly Hare Krishnas in the corner for the first couple of days. (laughs) Who's that little old man? (laughs) He's very clean. (laughs) 
which was an awesome callback. Love that. I love it that they showed that snip in the little intro thing so that people who yeah. didn't know the reference had a reference point. I have a little bone to pick with that, though, the intro, because Peter Jackson, for some reason, placed Yellow Submarine in 1965. The movie did not come out in 65, my friend. No, that was incorrect, too. And it was also, I think, incorrect that George was 13 when he joined the band. He was already 14. He was definitely 14. So there were a couple things where I was like, mm, that's a lot. How'd that get past Apple? <laughs> yeah, yeah, there are a few things. I mean, maybe there's some way to argue that those things were true under the right circumstances if you argued at a certain sure. rate. I don't, I don't know. I mean, so many people had to have approved this and it was the only thing on the screen. Yeah, well, John didn't meet Paul until George was already 14, so... Yeah, I don't know. There, there were a couple <laughs> of very strange things, and I wonder if they just kind of put that there to make the story feel a little bit more cohesive. Maybe that was honestly an afterthought. I could see that, and that's okay, because they spent their time on, you know, the get-back part of this, and they were probably just like, ah, shit, we got to put something before it, which, understandable. We'll, we could let that slide, but, you know... Just so that you know that we know. Yeah. To be Filmmakers. fair, they were still editing it like six days before it dropped. That's why, you know, you guys get some allowances because you, you did the Lord's work on this overall. Well, speaking of some of the early days, I loved that they brought up some of the um, the ancient Lennon McCartney compositions, you know, where they talked about sitting, of course, the, t- the tale as old as time, sitting in Paul's living room in front of the fireplace, you know, John and Paul playing to each other, writing songs. They name a lot of really nonsensical songs in the uh, Dick James bit. Um, <laughs> yes, they do. Which is very funny. It, it's cool and a little strange that Paul brings up Ain't She Sweet? And I'm like, yeah, Paul, it's on the anthology. <laughs> like, duh. <laughs> Paul didn't know about the anthology at that time. As, I know. As much as he is from the future, maybe he just slipped his mind. I was surprised, and I think we've talked about this before on the pod, either when the Abbey Road box came out or maybe even the White Album, but give me some truth. I feel like that should be a Lennon McCartney composition. I was so surprised about that. It must have slipped my mind that we discussed it before, because when I saw it, I was like, what the fuck? Like, that just gives this whole feeling about who John was in the immediate post Beatles years like that that song to me is like oh of course it was 71 and he was like in his anti-war protest mode and he was super honest about everything yeah Yeah. like that doesn't feel like something that he and Paul would have worked on together but they did yeah and I feel like Paul should have gotten a co-write on that I know, just like maybe all of the Beatles should have gotten a co-write and all things must pass. I mean, they did a lot of work on the background and the instrumentation around it. I would love to know how those negotiations went down because you know at some point somebody had to bring it up where it's like, you know, give me some truth should be Lennon McCartney. But maybe that was settled when the Beatles quote unquote divorced, who knows? Yeah, maybe because Paul had Teddy Boy and McCartney and that was credited and Another Day, which he played, also mm, yeah. credited to he and Linda. But it was right clearly during the time when everything else was credited as Lennon McCartney. Yeah, it's very uh, curious and curious. Or speaking of all things must pass, obviously it was nice to hear that. I thought it was very funny in the last part where George is talking about like, hey, you know, it'd be cool if we all could do our own like projects along with the Beatles stuff. Like very like gently saying like, I want to make my own album because you assholes won't let me have any cuts, right? Um, or do what I want to do. And then he's like. 
I have enough material to last me 10 years. I'm like, <laughs> or, or George, you could just blow it on one big album. Yeah. Like in a year. Triple album. <laughs> just <laughs> fucking blow it. <laughs> he was stifled for long enough. It just had to come yeah. out. I loved that conversation because it was a great model going forward. Had the Beatles not broken up, they could have done that for years. Totally. I mean, I you got to wonder what that would have been like to have John like in the corner making like Plastic Ono Band or, you know, any of the, the like some more experimental. He probably would have even gone more experimental and saved the more mainstream stuff for the Beatles. Hell, Imagine could have been a Beatles song if that would have gone forward. Oh, for sure. And, you yeah. know, if it wasn't for all of the Alan Klein bullshit, it probably could have happened like that, at least for a couple more years. Yeah, it probably could have. And I just keep thinking about all of their solo albums in the first two or three years. I mean, Paul played Backseat of My Car, which blew my fucking mind. Oh, my God, right? <laughs> oh, my God. I was like, shut up. This is not happening right now. Yeah, that's another one. Like, that is Paul in, you know, that that's Paul in the 70s. Yeah. Nobody else could have written that except Paul in the 70s. But no, because Paul in like 1968 probably wrote that. Probably. Speaking of songs that were written in 68. So when did fucking Child of Nature become On the Road to Marrakesh? Because and then, of course, it becomes Jealous Guy like 10 years later. But it's like, John, like what? How did this title evolve, buddy? (laughs) He just could not find a way to like settle that tune and the right lyrics. And I think Yoko was right on that one. It was not. It was not authentic sounding, and it's good he shelved yeah. it when the right when the right verse finally came along for it. Yeah, he was. I mean, he was in love with the tune, obviously, and you know, it ended up in the place where it's supposed to be. Jealous guys, obviously, a phenomenal song. So he did it right in the end. Yeah, but again, every time they play one of those things, it's still like a weird time warp feeling. It's so weird. Yeah, it's it's very strange. Um, also, sidebar: this is, has nothing to do with songs, but Paul never saw The Wizard of Oz. Which fucked me up big time. I hate The Wizard of Oz. Shut up. No, you don't. I do. You don't. I do. Why? Because Why I do you hate saw it when I, I saw part of it on TV. Like it used to be on TV every year when I was a really little kid. And it absolutely terrified me. And it makes me very uncomfortable to watch it still. <laughs> oh, my God. That's really sad. I That's one of my favorite. I mean, that was my favorite movie growing up. And my first obsession, I collected all kinds of Oz crap for years. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, my God. I love The Wizard of Oz. But it's just, it was wild to think, like, Paul hadn't seen it. Because I feel like I remember hearing stories of, who was it? Was it John, maybe, renting, like, a projector and a screen, uh, like, a screening copy of The Wizard of Oz for maybe, like, Julian's birthday? Or something. I could be making this up. If you guys listening know what I'm talking about or just want to be like, that sounds like bullshit, let me know. But I feel like I've heard that. So obviously, if that happened, Paul was not invited to that party. <laughs> yeah. Maybe he's mad that he wrote Hey Jude. Maybe. Huh. Anyway, um, Erica hates Wizard of Oz, so I find on. it terrifying. I don't hate it, but That's I find crazy. it scary as fuck. Margaret Hamilton as the Wicked Witch is a gift. Scary. She's a fucking treasure those like whirlpool kaleidoscopy things and like that crazy like full color it's just scary i find it so scary yeah (laughs) i'm we have to agree to disagree on this one look i know i know i'm a theater kid believe me i'm the only person i know who feels this way that's insane anyway glenn johns am i right 
Oh my god, I would love that coat right now. <laughs> Speaking of uh, Technicolor nightmares, but actually not a nightmare because I loved everything he wore and I would wear it all. He was a work of art. It made me really want a fluffy coat and not like a fur coat because it didn't actually look like fur. It just like synthetic fluff. You know, those are really on trend right now. Oh my gosh, Glenn Johns is gonna like be a fashion whiz kid for the next season. Yeah, that Ringo's pink floral shirt to me was like the superstar. Wasn't that one of the shirts that they wore on tour a couple of years back under their suits? On the 66 tour? Yeah, wasn't it? I feel like I know what you're talking about. They wore it like under gray blazers. The gray pinstripe suits? Yeah. Like they wore at the Budokan. Or Mm -hmm. the Budokan... They wear those with Budokan. I think they wore black suits with velvet lapels at the Budokan. Or am I nuts? I mean, I'm definitely crazy. I just I'm not sure. <laughs> but I know the I know the suit you're talking about because they wore it a lot on the on the '66 tour. I don't know if those were just plain pink or if they were the florally. I would love it if they're the florally and they had the the gray pinstripe suits. That would be such a look. I'll do some research on this and try and I'm see do if like I can a little find. Deep dive. If he was wearing like a callback to one of his old tour outfits, uniforms. I think that's just so cool. Ringo, I think overall his fashion in this was the best. Well, Ringo is really coming into his own because I think that his his most attractive period ever was the Abbey Road period. So he's really getting, like he's right on the precipice of being the hottest Ringo of all the Ringos right now. I don't know. I think this, he is the hottest Ringo of all the Ringos in this for me because like, you know, I don't love Fierty Ringo when he does that for a hot second. But I also love Hot Mess 70s Ringo, so I'm really conflicted, even mm-hmm. though he's got kind of a beard in that period. At the bottom of our list, though, is John. It didn't look like he put any thought into his fashion. I like the one buttoned-downed shirt he wore. The, um, the stripy one? Stripy one. Yeah, I like that. But of course, that was it, so... Though you could tell he had recently been in a movie because he said he was wearing continuity clothes during the Twickenham the rehearsals there because he thought that I know. it was going to, you know, the cuts were going to you know look like they were all in one day. Movie star John unlocked. Yeah. <laughs> yes, we all we are all aware you went and shot a movie. <laughs> Speaking of movies, you know, of course, the documentary and the making of the album is on a schedule because Ringo is going to start shooting the Magic Christian because I guess that matters. And Peter Sellers drops by the studio for what is probably the most awkward 30 seconds of the entire film. And that's that saying a lot. so uncomfortable. I mean, I kept thinking like, John, like you grew up listening to like the goons. You love Peter Sellers and you're like being kind of an aloof dick to him. I don't know. Maybe there is background there. I don't know. But I was just like, this is one of your heroes and you're not being very hospitable to him. Yeah, the only thing I could think was, like, this is what he does. Like, wasn't he kind of the same way when he met Elvis? That's true. And I suppose at this point, you know, a lot of the sheen has been rubbed off meeting your idols. At the same time, he didn't need to be such a dick. He was just, you know, he didn't do anything wrong. Peter Sellers was being perfectly affable. He kind of came in at the same time as Dick James. That's true. They might have just been already in a really pissy mood because of that bullshit. Yeah. The Twickenham cameos were a little odd, but I did enjoy seeing Neil Aspinall always. Yep. I enjoyed seeing Peter Brown pop in and out throughout the thing. I think he finally got his little title card on the roof, maybe. Right maybe before, right before, the before roof. that. Yeah, like 20 minutes before the roof, he and Yoko were having a conversation. I know. I was like, oh, now you're going to tell us that's Peter Brown. Thank you. <laughs> right. And of course, Dennis O'Dell, head of Apple Films, 
Robert Frazier comes in, Robert Frazier Art Gallery looms large in the Beatles legend. Yes. Um, who, uh, well, we get to see tape operator Alan Parsons, the famous Alan Parsons. Yes, that was doing his thing. Interesting. Never thought yeah. of him as involved in this project. Yeah, yeah. He worked with Apple for a little bit. And our sweet baby, Chris Thomas, looking Aww. like a little angel. I know. Oh, I miss him. We, Erica and I hung out with Chris a bit at uh, the White Album Symposium in 2018. He was just a sweetheart. Really was one of the best Beatles events ever. That symposium. Fucking epic. And Chris is a part of it. We got to hang out with him and have some drinks one night. And he Lots was of fun. such a lovely guy. Yeah. Lots of fun. And another guest star, the guest star, I, I guess, is Billy Preston. Oh, yeah. God, we haven't even talked about Billy Preston yet. Jesus Christ. Talk about the tides turning. It's like everything. The mood just like went when Billy got there. That man was a ray of sunshine. Oh, my God. His his beautiful little smile the whole time. He was yeah. so happy to be there. Did you see that one moment when he was on the keyboard and it, it focused in on Paul, who just had this look like, holy fucking shit, we've got it. Like, this guy's yeah. so good. Like, I've never seen Paul look so just starstruck. Paul's probably like, thank Christ, like somebody I don't have to explain everything to. Because <laughs> that's how I think Paul thinks in this moment. <laughs> I don't know. I think he was thoroughly just like overwhelmed by how good he was. How he just hopped on those keys and made that song come to life. He was such an intuitive keyboard player. It was unreal how he just got on there and like ripped right into those keyboard parts that we all know and love from those songs. Yeah, and I don't know how long he'd been there before, but the film gave us the impression that he just was kind of there and he just launched into that stuff without planning. Yeah, where he was like there, you know, in England playing for Lulu or something. The narrative is different from the narrative I've heard before about how he ended up in the studio. But I'm not sure if that was creative storytelling, because one of the title cards in the on the documentary basically said Billy Preston stopped by to say hi, and then he was kind of asked to stay. Yeah, what had you heard before? Well, I'd heard before that George had come into contact with him a few days before and wanted to bring him in as kind of a calming influence and to keep the Beatles on their best behavior with just a new energy oh. in the room and that it was kind of planned. Oh, I could see that. So I don't I don't know what the what the real story is because they were pretty definitive about this was totally not planned at all and he was just coming to say hey. Hmm. That's interesting. I mean, that's one of those things or, uh, you know, question I asked myself through this whole thing is, you know, would this doc, the whole documentary have been different had George and John been involved? You know, is that one of the things where George had been like, well, actually, guys, I asked Billy to come. It really did make it seem like, oh, gosh, this is just a lucky you know, coincidence or whatever that Billy just happened to be here. And they had been talking about him the whole time where it's like, oh, Ray Charles organist, you know, Billy Preston. He just, you know, does it all. Ray just does the piano. And they teed it up sort of like, you know, oh, we, I wish we had just one person to play piano the whole time. And I'm like, wow, guys, it's almost like you're making a movie. Right. And you're going to find somebody to play <laughs> piano. I don't know. I, everything yeah. about the Beatles is some level of unbelievable kismet. Yeah, uh, that's true. I mean, Jesus, like, who? Yeah, why to even question it? Because, yeah, the whole fact that they existed is just unbelievable. Yeah, crazy. But, yeah, I mean, I did sort of wonder through this whole thing, like, how much creative or editing input did Paul and Ringo and Yoko and certainly Olivia, but she, you know, wasn't there, you know, have on this. We talk about Yoko sort of being, you know, sort of in the background and, and whatever, but were their cut, parts cut out? 
you know, where she was maybe more not so much in the background. Yeah, I don't I don't know. And I know the way it started was that uh, Peter Jackson just wanted to do it. And he he created some cuts, I think he had access to the vaults and he created some cuts to show Paul and Ringo because they didn't want to revisit this time. And he was able to show them some footage and say, hey, look, it wasn't as bad as you remember. Look at this. You actually were having a good time. Right. But I don't know what happened next. You know, I know that they were they were involved and they were producers on the project, but I'm not sure how much they vetoed or if anything, you know, what actually came out at their request or, or anything like that. Yeah, because I think Paul, I, I don't know, maybe I am too hard on Paul, but I always yes. feel like he yes. is, <laughs> shut up, you don't get an opinion, <laughs> apologist. Mm. Um, but I I feel like he's like the king of revisionist history. You know, I never trust shit that Paul says about the Beatles nowadays, <laughs> because it's it's just been too long. And he's been telling the same stuff over and over for years. So while I enjoy the things that he says, I don't know how much I believe all of it. So I don't know. I mean, maybe it's different because, you know, he's confronted with the film for this. So it's really like, you can't deny what happened because it's right there. So maybe, maybe he didn't really have a heavy hand in this. I'm not sure. It would be lovely to know. It would be. I, I'm sure that there are some interviews out there that I just haven't listened to or read that kind of detail that. I don't know about if your opinion on Paul's sense of revisionist history is that correct i mean okay why is paul walking around saying that he and and john collaborated and give me some truce like that feels like one of those songs those those stories where he would tell the story and everybody was like paul's such a fucking bullshitter and then the, you know and then here's the tape <laughs> showing true. that they actually did it and you know he's never said that as far as i know that's true because paul would fucking love it to be like look the tape motherfucker right <laughs> I mean, I just think about his song from New, you know, That Was Me, or whatever it is, where it's like, I was there, you weren't, suck it. <laughs> it's not, he would love this. It's not the interpretation I had of that song. Or no, That Was Me is from Memory Almost Full. What song yeah. am I thinking of from New? Um, You're thinking um, of Early uh, Days. Early Days, yeah, where he's like, suck it. <laughs> yeah, basically, which I love. I yeah, love. that's Early Days, yeah, yeah. I mean, that was me is kind of the precursor to that. But then early days, he's like, I'm just going to fucking spell it out for people. Like I was there, you weren't. And that's the best thing about this documentary. We all get to be there. Exactly. And I, I hope, I can only hope that it was cut judiciously so we all can kind of like make our own opinion about things, which judging by the tornado going on in my brain right now, I feel like that was the intent. So yeah, they actually said that in every title card to start each each of the three installments. It said like, we have tried our best to be, to represent all of the people involved in the events as accurately as possible. Yeah, so, yeah. And if you can hear that noise in, my, in the background, Rosie the dog can't stop snoring. So. Aww. Yeah. We are also blessed by Rosie's snores. Yes, yes. Oh, you, <laughs> oh I can hear her. Yeah, she's so cute. <laughs> Oh, I love it. I know. Uh, Epi snores, but I have Daphne the dog next to me. She does not snore, sadly. So what else should we touch on here? Michael Lindsay Hogg. Oh, God. Okay. Not, oh, God, in like a bad way, but just, gosh, uh, I feel for this guy. He had, he had quite yeah. a job, didn't he? Yeah. And we'll, we'll get to the differences between the original and this, but the original did not show that like play within a play version of what are we going to do? And here's the director, like 
grasping at straws and trying to get these people to agree on anything. I guess now would be a good time to touch on the original because really, I remember really liking it when I saw it probably 10, 15 years ago. And then watching it this week, I'm like, this thing has nothing in it. (laughs) It's just literally like just them jamming the whole time. And the story is really not there, especially when you see in this documentary of what he was trying to build. Right. And what he, he really wanted something that built to a climax. Obviously, Peter Jackson had enough footage to make a story out of it all. Yeah, that was the thing about the trailer. I think we all were very wowed because we were like, oh, my God, he made a narrative out of this. Yeah, because it just seemed so random in the original, like, and it's very dark. It's hard to see. It's hard to understand what's happening really until the rooftop because it's just, it's just dark. And the sound wasn't that great. There was just no way to grasp it, a through line in that original version. And that's tough, you know, like to watch a movie like that. But it really was there. It makes you wonder if he was disappointed in the end result because he wanted it to be such a production. He had a lot of bosses in the end. He had a lot of people. His first cut had actually a lot more John and Yoko. And I think he got a call that said, you have three different people who've seen this and said, you need to get rid of that. And so there was less. Despite that, which is really ironic that Everybody thought that Yoko broke up the Beatles, even though they cut a lot of her contributions in the original. But also, you know, they wanted to suppress George leaving. Some of the best narrative parts are the parts that happen around the rehearsals. I mean, the stuff about Libya is funny. It's, you know, like, it's it's a ridiculous situation that he wanted to do that. But the fact that they were trying to figure out how to make a climax to the show... That's a big plot point in this process that maybe they, you know, because he wanted to do that like cinema verite style, fly on the wall. So maybe showing the director and showing the Beatles talking about the process of the film didn't fit with that because that makes Mm -hmm. that makes the audience aware that the subjects are aware that a film is happening. So maybe that's part of the reason why they didn't want to go in that direction. But that's some of the most interesting stuff. Yeah. The Let It Be film makes you... At least it made me always believe that the Beatles were always 100% in control, like always knew they wanted to go on the roof or or just did it spontaneously, you know, one of the two. So, yeah, one of the coolest things I think about Get Back is you got to really see that process sort of roll out where they chucked a ton of ideas where they were like, you know, before it wasn't even them that decided to go on the roof. You know, George obviously didn't want to go on the Not roof. Not at all. Yeah. <laughs> I'm with him. I don't know if that, that roof seemed a little dodgy was pretty rickety i must say yeah. it's interesting to see him because he'd worked with the beatles before he did the rain in the paperback writer videos so he had an idea of what he was getting into but i keep wondering like what kind of contract did you sign oh my gosh right like i feel like there should have been something put into writing before you started this process and got a studio and got the beatles for a month how did this happen yeah. some sort of plan yeah yeah i mean He definitely had a writer for an unlimited supply of cigars, that's for sure. Oh, my God. Okay, so, you know, I love Paul, right? Uh, No, I didn't know that. Him smoking those cigars is the most pretentious fucking thing I wanted to smack it out of his mouth. (laughs) Oh, my God. You guys, you guys heard it, right? (laughs) I mean, I just heard that. She called Paul pretentious. I hated it. But luckily, (laughs) I've never seen him do that before or since. Just blame it on Michael Lindsay Hogg, because it was probably one of those things where Paul was like, okay, I'm craving a cigar because you're smoking them in my face. 
So, yeah, I guess, you know, wrapping up our our thoughts about Get Back for now, at least, you know, as I said, I went to the premiere here in L.A. We got to see a slightly different cut of the rooftop concert. Um, We did get to see the full thing, but I felt like there were more scenes with the Bobbies, which obviously was a highlight of the whole damn thing is the cops. It's like Keystone cops trying to get them off the roof and, you know, just an assortment of clips. But, you know, it was really good to see it all put together, like pretty concisely. It was like a 110 minute cut of the entire thing. Is that how they presented it? I think it was like an hour and a half or 120, something like that. And it yeah. was mostly the rooftop or did they condense the whole story of the three nights? First half was just Peter Jackson sort of talking you through it with examples and just random scenes. Then he showed us an entire day, which I believe was day 18. And then the grand finale was, yeah, the entire day of the rooftop. Seeing that on the big screen was breathtaking. Um, oh, I bet. You know, I kept saying that my my um, cheeks hurt so bad from smiling the whole time. It was just, yeah, it was crazy. It was awesome. You were watching it with a bunch of cool primary Beatle people, right? Like Stella was there and Sean, right? Yeah. Stella uh, and Sean and Julian were there, which I didn't really get to see Stella that well. I, I've never seen her in person, so I sort of just saw her in the audience. But I afterwards, I spoke to Sean for a hot second um, because like a million years ago in New York City, when I was in grad school, I almost interned for him when he was starting his music company. I knew he wouldn't remember that, but I sort of wanted to say like, hey, you know, congratulations. And this is amazing. And so, yeah, I just I basically was just like you know, reminded him how we'd met before and talked about the film for a second. And I was like, what did you think? And he's like, oh, he's like, dude, I was so teary. Aww. And I'm like, me too. <laughs> uh, and I ima- I can't imagine what it's like, you know, to see that footage. I'm sure he's seen it before, but, you know, if his mom and his dad and in their early days and all of that lovely, lovely yeah. stuff. So, yeah, it was good to, it was cool to see him. And Julian uh, was there with him, which is special. I didn't get to talk to Julian. I'd met him sort of before. He's around in LA. So yeah, it was great. And we got free popcorn. Nice. That's a winner. Yeah. And a totally different cut of the rooftop. Well, you know, almost different. It was an honor to go and it was really special. And I heard Julian say later that it made him see his dad in a whole new light, like revisit what he thought of his relationship. Like he was really moved by it too. Oh yeah. I read that on his Instagram, I think. Yeah, Yeah. That's so sweet. See, that's the thing, too, I think with, you know, Peter Jackson, he had this benefit of time and sort of having a fresh perspective on it all. And if that's healing for like the families, then that's the best result that could come out of this. Yeah, it probably is, because part of the the problem with Let It Be altogether was that it was worked on in 1970. It was worked on a year later when they were all so fucking angry with each other. They weren't speaking with each other. And, you know, it's just so colored in their minds and our minds by that. I'm sure it was so refreshing for everybody, Paul, Ringo, Julian, Sean, everybody, that it wasn't actually that bad. Yeah, I think you're right. And obviously, one of the main cruxes of this whole thing was Peter Jackson proving that it wasn't that bad. So, and he, he did it. He did it. Like, yeah. damn it, Peter. He sure did. <laughs> he did it. And he gave us something that we can explore and examine and obsess over for probably many years. Yeah, many, many, many years. I don't know if we'll all live in long enough to really get to the nitty gritty of this thing. There's <laughs> Probably so much, not, especially but... if he releases the 18-hour cut. Oh, please, Jesus, let that happen. That would be so great. I know. Oh, be amazing. Now, I have one more question for you about this that I can't stop thinking about. 
Okay. When they were talking about the full set list for the rooftop, they Uh included Maxwell Silverhammer, Teddy Boy, She Came In Through the Bathroom Window, and All Things Must Pass. But they were interrupted by the cops before that they could do any of those. So I keep thinking, what would have happened to Abbey Road or the subsequent solo albums if they had actually performed those things as the Beatles for this Let It Be project, would they have been part of this project? Would they have taken Bathroom Window and moved it to the medley or would have never been part of that? Or would it have been a double record Abbey Road? All Things Must Pass was the title album of George's solo. Like, what would have happened? That's such a good point. I didn't think about that, but they got cut off before they could do them. I mean, who knows? Like, you know, if if they would have gotten moved to this album or gotten cut or whatever, we would have never known the difference, you know? I know. Perhaps some of these songs that were included on the Let It Be album were intended for Abbey Road, and we don't know. You know, we don't know the difference. So I didn't see an anvil up there, so I can only imagine that Maxwell's sort of got axed because... Mal would have certainly had his moment in the uh, the spotlight. (laughs) Probably. Oh, Mal. He's like, I was born ready for this. But that's a good point, Erica. So if you write fanfic, please do an alternate universe version of what would have happened because I need to know. Yeah, go down that rabbit hole for us and let let us know where you come out the other side. So, wow. I mean, there's so much more to talk about, but I think we've done a pretty good job of covering what we can process right now. Yeah. Yes, exactly. That was a pretty decent brain dump for how many, like 72 hours after this thing. Well, we're going to end this episode as we always do with our latest Beatles obsession. And Erica, I'm going to let you go first. There's this store called Mod Shoes. It's a British clothing and shoe site. And if you haven't been there, you need to be there because they make mod shoes and mod clothing for men and for women and the shoes are absolutely to die for they also do this icon series where they make replicas of clothes that some famous british icons wore like they have brian wilson on there they have i think noel gallagher they have a couple of other like famous british musicians and they have a couple of beatles replicas and one of the ones that they recently created was a replica of that striped button-down blue stripy shirt that John wore and get back they said they saw it in one of the promos a few months ago and they sourced the fabric so that they could have it ready in time for this so yeah so you can get that shirt a total you know like a total replica of that shirt plus there's a couple of other Beatles inspired pieces like that red and white like where's Waldo-y shirt that Ringo has worn I think can help (laughs) and there's a that blue polka dot button-down shirt with the white collar and cuffs that I think Paul maybe wore during the revolver sessions. I'm not sure, but it's definitely like a Paul staple. Sadly, and I don't understand why, there are not any George pieces yet. Come on, guys, get on that. He wore so many cool Oh my God, come on. (laughs) So many good ones. But yeah, modshoes.co.uk. The shoes are incredible. The John Lennon shirt is the icing on the cake. Come for the shoes, stay for the Beatles replica seriously, clothing. Seriously. What are you obsessed with this week? Well, just to piggyback on that really quick, as we're recording, I get a text from a friend about uh, a company called Cellophane Flowers Inspired Costumes on Facebook. I don't know if they have a website. It looks like they're on Instagram, perhaps, but they are making a replica. It looks like they're making replicas of that fucking awesome Ringo floral pink shirt. <gasps> yeah. 
I'm so excited. Oh my gosh, they make Sgt. Pepper Christmas stockings? Shut <laughs> Okay, all right. This this needs more investigation, but I let me get it. to my obsession, which is not this, <laughs> but it will be this now. So I am super duper excited because earlier this month, we've had a little bit of a break, but on I think the 5th or so of November, it was announced that finally, after so many, like, it seems like years of crowdfunding and campaigning and petitions and all this kind of stuff, Brian Epstein is finally going to get his statue in Liverpool. I'm so excited. Yay. I cannot wait. I'm going to go and just hug it and never let it go forever. And it's being sculpted by the same person who did the awesome Beatles sculpture at Pierhead, sort of on the docks on the Mersey River. His name is Andy Edwards. They're fantastic. They are. I'm not sure if he did the Scylla sculpture on Matthew Street, but I wouldn't be surprised. And for placement, I'd heard they were going to try to maybe place it by the Beatles sculptures at Pierhead, but they're going to try to put it on Whitechapel, which is a thoroughfare where you know you can only walk there's no cars allowed but that was where the big nems store was in downtown liverpool and that's where brian walked from that nems location to the cavern when he discovered the beatles so it'll depict him making that walk so that'll be very exciting i'm like getting chills thinking about it and even more exciting it'll be the very first sculpture in liverpool of an lgbtq plus figure yes so big moment and that is awesome and i am so excited and i can't wait to go and see it and just like worship it and bring it offerings and just basically my life will revolve around it now and i'm very excited for that that is incredible i hope he's wearing a really (laughs) nice cravat and a scarf (gasps) oh my god what if they sculpt his little polka dots into his little scarf oh they have to they have to he was synonymous with oh my god i know (sighs) I hope so. Oh, I love it. I'm so excited. So yeah, that was such a beautiful day. I got like, my phone is blowing up all day of people sending me the articles. And I was just like, keep them coming. I'm so excited. Oh, I love it. Do they have yeah. a, a target completion date? I don't think so. I think it's actually still needs to be approved. Not so much the statue itself, but I think just where they're going to put it. I okay. think they just need to approve where it's going to go. And I'm not sure where they are on the actual sculpting of it. I know that there have been models made up and there have been like you know prototypes but i'm not sure if the real actual i think probably bronze sculpture has been made or not yet that's so exciting oh my god i know i'm so excited there there are so many things to do in liverpool that have were not there the last time i know i was there and i'm sure the last time you were there too so i cannot wait to be able to go I was there right before the world shut down and already there are so many new things and things I can't wait to go back and do. And man, this documentary, man, made me miss London, Liverpool so much. Got to get back. No pun intended. Oh my God. (laughs) On that note, uh, thanks for listening to Because the Beatles. And our next episode, we are going to talk about Paul's new book, which is on the top of the New York Times bestseller and uh, catch Paul on the the cover of the Costco magazine right now. (laughs) He's finally made it. He's finally, I know, after all these years, he's finally made it to the cover of the Costco mag. Good job, Paul. I know. I'm so proud of him. Yeah. And if you do buy it, bring your big bag because I put it on my bathroom scale. It weighs eight pounds. It's a big boy. Oh, damn. I didn't (laughs) realize it weighed that much, but that makes sense. Yeah, I started, I have it on top of my bookshelf and I had to like hoist it up there. Seriously, it's big. It's large and in charge. Yeah, join us then. <laughs> and uh, 
in the meantime, please be sure you're subscribed to VC the Beatles on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, wherever you're listening right now, and give us a rating review uh, so other Beatle maniacs can find us. And follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We'll be posting photos and more from this episode and beyond. Remember, you can always email us at bcthebeatles at gmail.com too. See you next time. Bye. Bye.